0: I'm Rob Kirkup. Welcome to How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the scariest places on the planet. In episode 55, we head to my native northeast and we explore a Roman fort dating from the second century where a skeletal Roman warrior still stands on guard, a transport museum where a navy aircraft shudders and shakes for seemingly no reason, a museum where an Egyptian mummy roams after dark. And an old railway where former staff remain in death. This week we ask just how haunted are the museums of Tyne and Weir? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. Arbea Roman Fort Museum Arbea is the remains of a large Roman fort in South Shields, built in around 158 AD. It was built on a low headland overlooking the River Tyne. Human occupation on the land here dates back many centuries before the arrivals of the Romans in Britain. Archaeological evidence show that the earliest settlements here date back to around 3000-4000 to 4000 BC, and an Iron Age roundhouse dating to around 400 BC was recently excavated in the southeast corner of the site. The Roman army had a firm grasp on the northeast of England by the time the Roman fort was built here in the 2nd century. The fort covered a site 4.1 acres in size, and it was home to 120 cavalry and 480 foot soldiers. By the early 3rd century, the garrison numbers were reduced somewhat, and most of the barracks were demolished to make way for stone granaries. The fort became a supply base for Hadrian's Wall in Wall's End, four miles to the east, for the campaigns of Emperor Septimus Severus in 208-210 AD. In the early 4th century the fort was attacked and burnt down, but it was quickly rebuilt. Near the end of the Roman rule, a squadron of Syrian bargemen from the Tigris were garrisoned here. They gave the fort the name it is known by today, Arbea, meaning, Fort of the Arab Troops. The Romans had previously called it Lugardunum, the unit occupied Orbea until the Romans left Britain in the early 5th century. The fort was occupied well into the 11th century and then it was left deserted. From that point on the site was used for farming until in 1875 the first archaeological excavations of the Roman fort began. Digging on the site of the headquarters building immediately proved successful, with a complete column being uncovered as well as engraved gemstones and coins. A decorated tombstone of Regina was revealed in remarkable condition. She was a British woman of the Catafaloni tribe, who was a slave and then a free woman. She was the wife of Barades, a Syrian merchant who added a message of mourning in his native Aramaic on her tombstone. Further digs in 1945-1950 to 1950 by Ian Richmond discovered the perimeter boundaries, and a museum was opened here in 1953. Excavations continue to this very day and the museum today is managed and the site cared for by Tynomia Museums. Some gruesome discoveries have been found in recent years. Two adolescent skeletons dating back to the 5th century with deep cuts in their skulls were revealed in a pit in the centre of the courtyard. A large number of human remains have also been found in one area leading many to believe that Arbea may have been the site of one of the largest Roman burial grounds in the north. The West Gate, the Barracks, and the commanding officer's house have been reconstructed on their original foundations based on the detailed evidence available, and this gives visitors today a chance to experience the magnificence of Roman architecture and how life in Roman times would have been. The museum contains a variety of exhibits including inscriptions, tombstones and recreation of a Roman burial. There was also an array of weaponry including a welded iron sword with a brass inlay showing Mars, the Roman god of war. With over 5,000 years of occupied history, it comes as little surprise that there have been numerous ghost sightings here. Locals have claimed to see Roman soldiers walking through the ruined remains of the fort, often walking past a pillar or a building, then vanishing. One witness claims to have been passing by late one night, and saw a ghostly Roman legionnaire standing in front of the reconstructed west gate. As they looked closer, they realised, to their horror, that the soldier appeared to be a skeleton a skull with gaben eye sockets and a loose jaw. Skeletal hands grasped a shield in one hand and a short sword in the other. They were absolutely terrified and looked around in the streets for someone, anyone, to come over and see this for themselves. The streets were deserted, they were on their own, and when they looked back, the skeletal warrior was no longer there. The original site of Arbea was much larger than the excavated site today resulting in many of the nearby modern buildings standing on top of the original Roman fort. The cellar of the Lookout Inn Public House, which is on a street opposite the fort, stands on the same level as the original fort. Staff members of the pub have reported seeing Roman soldiers marching across the cellar before walking out through a wall. When I was researching my book Ghostly Titan and Weir, I spoke with Darren Ritson, who himself is an author, having written many books, including Ghost Hunter, true life encounters from the northeast, and he was the co-author of the South Shields Poltergeist, one family's fight against an invisible intruder. He conducted a paranormal investigation at Arbea and he took the time to tell me what happened. I went to Arbea during the day for a pre-investigation visit, and experienced what I believe to be a paranormal occurrence. I was in the commanding officer's quarters when I tried to take a photo with my digital camera. I pressed the button, but nothing happened. I tried again but to no avail. So I used my Nikon SLR 35mm and pointed it, clicked and again nothing. I lowered the camera towards the floor to see what the problem was and it went off. One camera malfunction is odd, but two, I believe that there was a presence with me and it did not want his or her photo taken. Early into the investigation that night a blue flashing light was seen in the commanding officers house. A few minutes later it was seen again The atmosphere seemed to change, as if we were not alone. The temperature dropped and the air around us became ice cold, resulting in goosebumps. We headed to a section of the house where three bedrooms are joined by a corridor. I had previously locked the door to the corridor, witnessed by two other investigators, but when I went to open the door it was already unlocked. Later we went to the Great Hall to check on a trigger object. This was an item which we would placed onto a piece of paper and drawn around to see if it had moved and we would left it in a locked room. As with the door in the commanding officers house, I had locked it in the presence of two other people, but again this door now was also unlocked. We went into the room and the trigger object had moved to. We later found a third locked door had been mysteriously unlocked. We were later told that fourth Staff had previously reported doors in the commanding officers house unlocking of their own volition. Great North Museum Hancock. The Great North Museum Hancock is a natural history and ancient civilisations museum in Newcastle upon Tyne. It was founded in 1884 as the New Museum of Natural History, and after the death of its benefactor in 1890, the Newcastle born ornithologist and taxidermist John Hancock, the museum was renamed in his honour as the Hancock Museum. In 2009, The museum underwent a £26 million redevelopment and merged with the Museum of Antiquities and the Shefton Museum. It was then renamed the Great North Museum, Hancock. The museum today is a popular free family destination with a variety of exhibitions, talks, courses and activities for children. It is managed by Tyne and Weir Archives and Museums on behalf of Newcastle University. Visitors to the museum can enjoy finding out about wildlife and its habitat from the Living Planet Gallery. The Hadrian's Wall Gallery offers detailed insight into the 73-mile wall, which was built almost 2,000 years ago in the reign of the Roman Emperor Hadrian. You can find out all about fossils with a full-scale T-Rex replica skeleton. And then there's the world of the ancient Egyptians, including two genuine mummified people. The tale of Newcastle's first mummified person dates back to 1820, when Thomas Coates from Hayden Bridge in Northumberland, who had been an army surgeon in the East Indies, brought a female mummy home with him to the northeast after 22 years abroad. He had travelled home via Thebes, which is today known as Luxor, when he and a friend Walter Davidson each bought a mummy, which had been excavated in Gurna, which was a cemetery for the elite of Egypt. The idea of buying the remains of a dead person who had rested in peace for the best part of two centuries to take home as a souvenir is clearly wrong, but he did donate her to the Lytton Phil, an independent library which had opened in 1793 and was, and still is, a hub of learning and enlightenment in the city. In September 1821, the mummified remains arrived at the Lytton Fill. She was examined by a subcommittee, who removed the body from the highly decorated outer coffin, later returning it, although she was not, and never has been unwrapped. Not everyone approved of this, and several people wrote a complaint, saying, If the mummy be never opened by the society, to them it will be miser as gold. It will be worthless. It will be useless. And their resolution will be an injury to their posterity. For many years the mummy was known as the Coates' Mummy, and it was first studied in detail in 1964 by Dr. P. H. K. Gray using portable X-ray equipment. This was when her name was first revealed in the hieroglyphics, but this was later found to be slightly incorrect, as in 1991 the huge advancement in technology offered far more insight into who she is, as well as her true name. A CT scan revealed that she is 5 foot 2 inches tall, she died at some point between the age of 21 and 35, and she has a full set of teeth. Her tongue and vocal cords have been removed. And this is very strange for Egyptian mummification as the dead had to be able to speak their name to Osiris in the afterworld. Some hieroglyphics revealed her true name, Bakht Enhor. It's not known for sure when she lived but it's believed that she most likely lived at some point between 1069 and 715 BC. Her cause of death is unknown. Today Bakht Enhor is on display at the Great North Museum Hancock and alongside her is Newcastle's second mummy, Ertiru. John Bowes Wright, an Egyptologist and solicitor who was also from Haydenbridge in Northumberland, purchased the mummy of Ertiru in Paris in 1825. She was aged around 30 to 35 when she died, and the mummified remains date to between 664 and 525 BC. Wright donated the remains and coffins to the Lytton Phil in 1830, and in turn, She was moved to the New Museum of Natural History when it opened in 1884. Wright's opportunity to purchase the remains and coffins of Etirou was due to the invasion of Egypt in 1798 by Napoleon Bonaparte's French forces. Dominique Vivant Denon, one of the key scholars of the expedition who acted as Napoleon's art advisor, found the remains of Etirou in her coffin on a visit to Quirno near Thebes. After his death in 1825. Denon's connections of antiquities were auctioned in Paris, where John Bowes Wright won two lots. Lot number 242 was the mummy itself, and Lot number 243 was the outer coffin. Or at least this was the universally accepted story of Utturu's origins in Newcastle, for almost 200 years. This was until a blog post on the museum's website in 2021 entitled, Our Changing Relationship with Utturu, written by Joe Anderson, the assistant keeper of archaeology at the museum. It's a fascinating read, and it explains why the museum will no longer use the word mummy, but it also brings into question whether the mummified female is actually Etiru. It explains, and I quote, It transpires that Denon never brought back a complete mummified person from his travels in Egypt. Despite vehemently wishing to procure one, he returned only with some fragmentary remains. Denon discovered Itiru at an antiquities auction in Paris in 1822. The collection, being sold off, belonged to Sebastian Louis Solna, a man most famous for organising the removal of sculpture in Egypt and taking it back to France. Unfortunately, Solna never provided any provenance for the mummified person and coffins that Denon purchased. To muddy the waters even further, the description of Itiru and her coffins in Solna's sale catalogue raises more issues. It appears that while the coffins were clearly listed in the 1822 sales catalogue, the mummified individual we know as Zuturu is not. This means that any association the human remains had with the coffins can no longer be certain. In essence, the mummified person may not have originally belonged with the coffins. While this sounds astounding, the transportation of mummified bodies into different coffins was not uncommon, especially during the 18th and 19th centuries. When antiques dealers would plunder remains in high quality coffins. They would be unwrapped and despoiled to obtain the precious amulets and objects and then a different body would be substituted into the coffin before selling it on. The provenance and the identity of a mummified person is heavily reliant on evidence from the coffin. This is exactly the case with Eturu. Hieroglyphics on her coffin were translated in 1964 which revealed the name Ituru. However, we can no longer be 100% sure that the mummified woman inside the coffins is indeed Itiru. Joe Anderson goes on to say that they will continue to know her by the name Itiru, despite it being impossible to know if she belongs with the coffin that provided her name and identity. What we do know is that upon arriving in Newcastle, her remains were subject to what we would today consider to be an appalling desecration of human remains. Back in the early 19th century, there was a huge fascination with all things Egyptian. This had came about due to Napoleon sending 30,000 French troops into Egypt, but also doing something that no other person had ever done. He took with him more than 100 scholars from all disciplines to study, write down and copy all they could from the land of the pharaohs. Temples, tombs, mummies, tunnels, lavish treasures and the sacred pyramids were opened up revealing to the world a fascinating history and as we know, due to the two mummified females making the journey from Egypt to Newcastle, human remains were being sold far and wide. This brought about a morbid craze called unwrapping parties where the elite would buy a mummified person and then invite their friends over and the ancient Egyptian mummified people would be unwrapped and shown off. This was justified as being part of scientific studies but the vast majority of the time, they were really nothing more than gruesome spectacles. These macabre events initially were only done in the private homes of the elite, sometimes even royalty, but gradually they made their way down through society, where an unwrapping party could draw a huge crowd of onlookers, and tickets would often be sold. This was the case at the Lytton Fill on Monday, the 8th of March 1830, when three Newcastle surgeons, Thomas Michael Greenhow, John Baird, and Sir John Fife, unwrapped. It took two hours to unwrap her and the bandages weighed fifty pounds and six ounces. After the autopsy, where her internal organs were studied in great detail, Ertyru's body was prepared for display. A type of varnish known as shellac was applied as a form of protection. This is partly why tiru looks so dark today, as she was to be displayed upright in a standing position. She was subject to some severe violations a large bolt and ring were attached to her skull to enable her to be hung upright. At the same time a large metal staple was inserted through her spine. This secured her to the baseboard of the coffin beneath. This caused huge damage to her remains and in 2006 work was done to see if this could be rectified with the bolt and ring being removed from her cranium. Mummification was a considerably complicated procedure and it was all done to try and ensure a smooth transition to the afterlife. To reach the afterlife, the body needed to be protected for eternity so that the soul could reside there. These unwrapping parties completely violated the beliefs of these ancient Egyptian people and this meant that these souls could no longer rest in peace in the afterlife. Local legend has it that Etiru has taken to wander in the floors of the museum when visitors have left and the building is left empty and silent. The origin of this apparent horn is unclear but it's believed to have been first mentioned in the local press in 2004. Jonathan Loach, the senior communications officer at the museum has commented on the rumour of the haunting, saying I think the idea the museum is haunted is decades old, and not from any one source, kind of an urban legend. I've certainly seen it reported over the years that the museum is haunted, but it's not something we'd subscribe to. Northeast Land, Site and Air Museums In the autumn of 1916, RAF Usworth opened in the West Town Moor on a stretch of land north of the River Weir, between Washington and Sunderland. The airfield was used by 36 Squadrons, the region's home defence unit. By the summer of 1917, the Squadron HQ was based at the airfield, with the Bristol Fighter being the primary aircraft in use. In June 1919, 36 Squadron was disbanded, and the grass airfield no longer served a purpose. In March 1930, the 607 Squadron of the Royal Auxiliary Air Force moved on to the unused airfield. During the war, the aircraft was improved to include a perimeter track and two runways. Squadron 607, equipped with Hurricane aircraft between June 1940 and early 1941, were actively involved with the war effort. On the 15th of August 1940, every single aircraft from RAF Usworth was in action. Shooting down a great many German Heichel and Messerschmitt smit 110 air fighters over the northeastern coastline. On the 3rd of July 1962, the airfield became Sunderland Airport after being purchased by Sunderland Corporation. In 1974, a group of like minded vintage aircraft enthusiasts began meeting at the airport regularly, forming a club and establishing a site in Lambton where they would begin to form a collection of aircraft, which, after several name changes, would go on to become the Northeast Aircraft Museum. In 1977, the museum was moved to Sunderland Airport. In 1984, Sunderland Airport was closed to make way for a Nissan car factory, and the Northeast Aircraft Museum was moved to a 4 acre site just outside the boundary of the airport, where it remains to this day. On the 23rd of January 1997, arsonists destroyed the museum's Vicar Valletta C2 VX-577 twin engine military transport aircraft. This was one of only three Vallettas in existence. The Valletta's restoration work had taken two years and it had only just been completed the previous summer. A military vehicle collection previously displayed in Newcastle began relocation to the museum's new large Romney hut in early 2012. This addition resulted in the name change of the facility from the Northeast Aircraft Museum to its present name, Northeast Land Sea and Air Museums. The Northeastern Electrical Traction Trust N-E-E-T-T, moved trams and buses into a new tram shed on the site in April 2013. It was completed and a track installed in December 2013. The Northeast Land, Sea and Air Museums has gained a reputation in recent years as one of the most active haunted hotspots in the region, with dark shadows and poltergeist activity experienced regularly in all three hangars on the site. One of the most regular occurrences includes an air-sea rescue helicopter, which is involved in the rescue of Falkland's war troops from the ship Sir Galahad in June 1982. The spirit of a pilot is very protective of his helicopter, and he has been seen on a number of occasions. More commonly, people have been pushed by unseen hands when standing close to the helicopter. Another spirit linked to the museum is that of Edward Grenville Shaw. Shaw was a pilot in training during World War II, and on the 12th of March 1942 he was involved in a routine training exercise. This involved two trainee pilots flying Hurricanes towards each other, unfortunately they clipped wings and Shaw's plane crashed just a short distance away. He had been thrown from his vehicle in the impact and he was killed instantly. His body was found in boggy ground and when he was recovered his boots were left behind. The ghost of a man, believed to be Shaw, has been seen on a number of occasions, calling out for help in the display hall in hangar 3. The same man has been seen wandering amongst the wreckage in the display hall where the wreckage of his crashed hurricane is on display. Often all that is seen of him is a black pair of trouser legs, vanishing from the waist up and without a pair of feet. The ghost of a German spy who stole a plane to escape during World War 2 is often seen. He was later hung in Germany for a separate crime. Other occurrences are stones being thrown in hangar 1 the ghost of an Alsatian dog being seen and heard across the site, and the noise of wartime music and chatter being heard. A former Navy aircraft in Hangar 2 has been seen to shudder and shake inexplicably. A spirit known as George by the staff has also been seen walking throughout the museum. It is believed that during the war he was asleep on the roof of one of the hangars of the old airfield during a hot summer's day. He woke with a start and rolled off the roof to his death. Northeast Supernatural Research spent a night investigating the Northeast Land and Air Museums in May 2007. Ethel Turnbull, one of the core team members, told me of their findings. Northeast Supernatural Research decided to investigate the Northeast Aircraft Museum, as it was known at the time, after hearing so many stories about what people had been experiencing there. During the evening, we saw several dark shapes follow us around all three of the hangars. We also saw someone in a blue outfit similar to a boiler suit, walked behind one of the hangars. A few small stones, or what we presume to be stones, as the noise was quite loud, was thrown at us in one of the smaller hangars. Darren, the other core team member, had a two pence piece thrown at him, which he found lying next to him on the floor when he looked. The shuffling of footsteps, while we were all in the hangars, stood completely still, was heard by everybody present. One of the team thought she heard somebody singing roll out the barrels, However she failed to mention this until later, as she thought it was somebody in the three horseshoes pub next to the museum. She also saw a person looking at her from the cockpit of the helicopter in hangar 2. We set up a trigger object, some old coins. We drew around them on a piece of paper and an hour later when we went back we discovered that they had all moved. The Northeast Aircraft Museum in our opinion did not disappoint. I also took the time to talk to Lee Foster of the Haunted Land Paranormal Research website and he explained to me what happened when he joined an investigation at the museum. In March 2007, I attended a paranormal investigation at the museum. My experience was one of mixed feelings, even though medium Ian Shillitoe headed it and tried his best to keep everyone entertained. I went with an open mind in the hope that the reputation of it being one of the most active locations was true. Certainly when the lights are off, it does take on a whole new atmosphere, as the silhouettes of huge planes and helicopters dominate the floor space. There were a few things that occurred that failed to impress me, such as a model plane suspended on a wire which turned ever so slowly, seemingly at the medium's request. But it continued to do so anyway when he didn't. The EMF meter went off the scale at a particular location even though it's claimed, but not proven, that there is no electrical device or cabling in the area and the taps and cracks that occurred were merely stones and refuse being thrown about by the unusually high winds that battered the hangars that night. Not communication responses as some people claimed. But there were some things that happened that I was impressed by. The first was in the Westland helicopter. As we all sat in the darkness of the cabin, I suddenly felt travel sick, as though we were flying along at great speed. Next door in a smaller hangar is a de Havilland sea venom, this has claimed to judder and move of its own accord, and sure enough, as I stood with my hands rested on its wing, it did vibrate slightly, but whether this is paranormal in a spiritual way remains questionable. During a seance in the shop area, I did see on the opposite side of the room a dim glow of white light that I put down to somebody occasionally checking their watch with its light. When the lights came on however, nobody was there, everyone was sitting on the floor, my final experience was when I was sat in the Jail Air Shore 330. Ian, who was sat in front of me, said something had touched his head, and at the same moment I saw a tiny white light float above his head. As I reached out to hold it in my hand, it disappeared. Whether my experiences were genuine or psychological phenomena remains undecided, though I do tend to side with the latter view. I'm sure those planes do have a story to tell, but on this night they weren't sharing it. The Railway and National Heritage Museum The Bores Railway was opened in 1826 and it was built by George Stevenson, the famed railroad engineer and inventor of the rocket, the most famous of the early railway locomotives. Due to a new colliery being opened in Springwell, a railway was required to transport coal to the River Tyne via the Jarrow Staiths. Stevenson designed the railway to function by utilising a combination of inclines, relying on gravity and steam engine technology. The line was soon extended to serve a number of other collieries, and the length of the line grew to 15 miles. In 1932, the company was rebranded the Bowes Railway after John Bowes, one of the company's senior partners and a big name in the coal trade in the north. In 1947, Bowes Railway became part of the National Coal Board, and a substantial sum of money was invested in the modernisation of the line. In the 1960s, hundreds of northeast coal mines were closed and as a result the railway line was cut back and in 1974 it closed down altogether. In 1976, a group of enthusiasts took over the line and received government back to reopen Bowes Railway, the only surviving standard gauge-roped hall railway in the world as a museum, and preserve it as a national monument. The railway line from Bankfell Bankhead to Springwell has been restored to work and condition, and a large number of the original buildings The oldest on which being the joiners and blacksmith shops, which date back to the railway's openings in 1826. The museum is also home to a number of steam locomotives and trains rescued from the old colliery railways. Many are restored to working condition and on special open days can be seen in action. The railway and the colliery saw a great number of accidents and deaths during the working life of the site. One of the restored features of the museum is the Blackham Hills Hauler House and its rope worked inclined system. The system was a pulley which would move at a rapid speed, safety standards were low, and workers would occasionally get caught in the rope as it moved, and would be literally torn in two. The colliery suffered explosions in 1833, 1837 and 1869, killing hundreds of men and children, some as young as eight, and seriously injuring and maiming many more. It is also believed that in more recent years there was a suicide at the railway. There has been so much loss of life at Bowes Railway that it seems that the site has become a hotbed of paranormal activity. A ghostly man wearing a flat cap and overalls has been seen in the engineering room. He crosses the room, always walking the exact same path, then vanishes. Footsteps are being heard on the gravel outside of the workshops. When a member of staff has gone to check, there has been nobody there. A strange smell of soap has been experienced in the blacksmith shop, and children's laughter has been heard in some of the workshops. Jay Brown of Northern Ghost Investigations has spent many nights at Bowes Railway Museum as part of organised ghost hunts, and back in 2008 he told me of some of the inexplicable happenings that he has experienced. Northern Ghost Investigations have made a few visits to Bowes Railway Museum over the years, and it's always been an interesting time, although, Our very first visit to the museum was by far the most active. There are two incidents that have stuck in my mind ever since. The first incident involved what we call the blacksmiths, at the bottom end of the museum. We would heard a couple of tales surrounding this location from the caretaker of the museum, one of which concerned stories of previous visitors running from the room screaming, so I for one was looking forward to my time spent in there. Sadly nothing happened, and the location seemed as dead as the proverbial to me, which was a little disappointing. However, later in the night a small group of NGI, including myself, were in the area of the blacksmiths, investigating another location within the museum. Suddenly I heard a noise from behind the door of the blacksmiths that sounded like metal hitting metal. Our small group were the only people at this end of the museum, and I knew nobody else other than those I could visibly account for were present. Thinking nothing much of it, I casually made my way into the blacksmiths to investigate. Maybe somebody had slipped in without me noticing. It was worth taking a look if nothing else. I managed to get approximately 10 foot from the door when I seemed to walk into something. The best way I can describe it was a wall of energy which seemed not to want me to approach the door. All of the fight or flight flags were raised and I was genuinely afraid of going any further. I would never experienced such raw fear like this before on an investigation or ever since. I was seriously spooked. I felt as though some force emanating from the blacksmiths did not want me to approach the door. Being an intrepid investigator, I did the only sensible thing one would do. I called out to the other three in this small group to head over to where I was, to give me a little moral support. When our small group gathered, each of the others immediately felt what I was experiencing, and described exactly the same thing I was feeling, in exactly the same spot I had stopped in. Gingerly, and step by step, we approached the door. Although strengthened by the others with me, each step seemed to get harder and harder, and the sense of foreboding grew. We got to the door and slowly pushed it open, the room was empty, but the sense of a strong presence in the blacksmiths remained, I described it afterwards by saying, if it had a voice, then I would hear it screaming at me, get the hell out of here. Something did not want us in that room and was using the sheer force of its presence to get us to leave, but we didn't. We stood in the open doorway just watching and waiting. I called out, asking whoever was present to show themselves, but nobody did, over the course of the next few minutes, we felt the sense of dread slowly fade away, as whatever it was, must have decided to leave. If it was this presence that had caused the previous groups to run screaming from the blacksmiths, then I can perfectly understand why. Our second interesting incident occurred later in the night whilst in the joinery. Our small group had dotted themselves around, and we would spent 40 minutes or so almost bored with the lack of anything remotely interesting within the location. Upstairs in a display room situated in an old storage area, another small group seemed to be having just as quiet a time as we were. I positioned myself on a metal staircase and was calling out to anything present or merely passing by to make contact with us. A sensitive was with us claimed that a spirit, a man, was present in the joinery, standing in a corner, watching us with almost an amused manner, but no matter how much we tried, they didn't seem interested in performing any tricks for us, as we were told by the sensitive. Admittedly, I was getting a little frustrated which I know I shouldn't. After the earlier incident in the blacksmiths, I was determined to make some kind of contact with any entities present within the museum. I don't normally feel frustrated whilst on an investigation, but I felt that games were being played. Other groups during the night had felt the same too, something seemed to be teasing us, just drawing us in and then leaving us right there on the edge, and was were seeming to take pleasure from it. I think the frustration I was feeling was becoming evident in my voice as I was calling out. At one point, the sensitive claimed that she had been told by the spirit in the corner that I should shut up. I never did of course and continued calling out, trying to get something from the man. Again, the sensitive said, shut up. It would appear that the man was getting riled. Normally I would ease off at this point, as I don't want to upset anybody, dead or alive. But the frustration I was feeling was seemingly getting a life of its own. He's shouting out now, Jay. Shut up, shut up, over and over again, the sensitive told me, but onwards I pushed. Suddenly I saw something move fast in the corner of my eye, and I instinctively raised my arm to protect myself. I didn't need to, as whatever it was seemed to miss me and clatter noisily on the metal staircase, eliciting screams and shouts from both downstairs in the joinery where we were, and upstairs in the display room. Upon investigation we found a large piece of wood, some six by four by two inches, resting on one of the stairs. Alarmingly it had been cut in a way that one of the corners was shaped as a sharp point, That would cause serious damage if somebody was hit by it, and certainly with the force it seemingly had been thrown. After doing the necessary checks on the wood, which all came up normal, we all then set out to determine whether it had been this wood that was thrown. Nobody had seen the wood on the stairs before the clatter and noise, and so we set about throwing it at the stairs ourselves to check it made the same noise, and whether it was the wood or not that had been thrown, we determined that it was. This isn't the end of our time at Bowes Railway Museum, Hang around till the end of the podcast to find out more. Mm-hmm. 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 You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at, at or over on Instagram at How where you will see photos galore relating to the haunted museums of Tyne and Weir. If you want to get in touch you can do so by visiting the website at wwwhow or you can email me at rob at how If you'd like to support the show, you could sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. You can get early ad-free access to episodes and a monthly bonus episode where I conduct a paranormal investigation, talking you through the history, ghost stories and what happened on the night itself. This is interspersed with audio from The Ghost Hunt. You can also get yourself some exclusive How Haunted merch, including a mug and a t-shirt. To find out more, head over to patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod. If you'd like to support the show, but you aren't a fan of Patreon, why not donate £2 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information and links are in the podcast episode description. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please consider leaving a review on your podcast provider of choice. It only takes a few minutes, and it really does help other people to find how haunted. Next time out, we're doing something a little bit different. We're actually gonna return to one of the museums we've looked at in this episode, as on the 26th of August this year, 2023, I conducted a paranormal investigation there as a guest of Spiritus Paranormal Investigations. Next episode, you will hear all about my night there, accompanied by audio from the night itself. Join me next week, for the first part of our paranormal investigation at the Bose Railway Museum. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe and join me next time where we will once again ask the question. How haunted?